0: have the privilege of gathering together and opening god's word together Um, the scriptures are the word of life um, the water of life and uh, the bread that we need week in and week out and so uh, it is um, a wonderful privilege to be able to come together and to open the scriptures together and to learn from them and from god as he instructs our hearts through the holy spirit Um, and then to go out into the week and serve him. So we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning, as Dick just read, John 1. Before we get to this text, let me just say uh, a couple of things. One is um, you heard the children go out just a few moments ago uh, as Jason dismissed them, and I just want to mention how uh, hard our children's ministry uh, servants are working and, and serving right now. Um, I know a number of folks are out with uh, the COVID and uh, other issues, um, difficulties right now. And so uh, our children's workers and servants have just stepped up. Our volunteers have in a big way. And so really do appreciate them. Um, Carrie Harrison has led that charge. She'll be transitioning that to Trevor here over the next couple of months. But uh, she's just done an amazing job and is herself serving week after week, subbing for people, um, plugging the holes, you know, with her fingers and toes and everything else and making the thing run. And so really do appreciate uh, all that they're doing. If you see any children's ministry volunteers around this morning, thank them uh, for the way that they have been serving. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I have told you before, I always love, have always loved studying history um, and reading history. I was a history minor in college, and those were some of my favorite classes. In the last couple of years, I have been reading Um, The the history books that I have been reading have had to do with the Roman Empire and the early church. I've just been fascinated by the first three to four hundred years after Christ and how the church developed and the context in which the church developed, which was the, the late Roman Empire. My favorite book, though, that I have read the last couple years regarding this time period is a book that I think I've told you about before. It's a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I love the title, wonderful read. But the basic gist of this book is that it describes the remarkable growth of Christianity in the first three to 400 years after Christ and after the apostles. And he tries to understand how and why and the methods that the early church used for the gospel to go forward. What, what, What did they do? Were they politically active? What did they do for the gospel to reach as many people as it did? And the book begins this way, and I want to read this to you this morning. The growth of the Christian church in the Roman Empire is mysterious. Scholars who spend their entire lives studying this phenomenon continue to find it surprising. Why did this minor mystery religion from the eastern Mediterranean, marginal despised, discriminated against, grow substantially, eventually supplanting the well-endowed respectable cults that were supported by the empire and aristocracy? What enabled Christianity to be so successful that by the fifth century, it was the established religion of the empire? I mean, that's the question he's going to go after in the book, and he spends about 300 pages unpacking that and trying to answer that question. And it's amazing because as you read the book, the picture that he gives is remarkably consistent with what happened in the book of Acts and in the Gospels. I mean, how did the Gospel go forward and reach all of the people it did over the first three to four centuries? They basically used the same method that they used in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts. And I I think we find that method given to us this morning. John is going to in some ways begin his gospel, at least the main portion of his gospel, the body of it, by describing how one becomes a follower of Christ, and then how that word and the light multiplies to reach more and more people. And that's what we're going to see in John 1, 19 to 51, which is where we'll be this morning. And here's Here's what we're going to look at. Two essentials to spreading the light so others can see. Two essentials to spreading the light so others can see. And this is really quite simple as we go through it. And the first essential that you need is you need a primary testimony. A primary testimony. And this is in verses 19 through 34. Look with me at the beginning of verse 19 if you have your Bible open. And this is the testimony of John. Now, we've already met this man named John in this gospel. And this is not John, the author of the gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. We've already met him back up in verses 6 through 8. Look there with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. couple of things to notice about John. He was sent from God. That was in fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. We read that text last week, where God describes sending someone before He would show up himself before the Messiah would come. And John was sent from God for a specific purpose. That purpose was he was to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but was to bear witness to the light, to point people to the light. And the reason that he was to point people to the light is so that they would see the light and they would believe and they would come to trust in him. Now here in verse 19, the gospel writer John picks up the same word. It's not translated the same in English, but the word witness in verse 7 and verse 8, I think it's, yeah, in verse 7 and verse 8 is the word testimony. It's the same root word. And so you could say, and this is the witness of John. This is the testimony of John. And here in verse 19, you have John the Baptist coming onto the scene for the first time in the gospel here in his public ministry. And this really begins the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist marks that beginning in all four gospels. He is a very significant figure. But why? Why is he so important to be mentioned in all four Gospels as the beginning of Jesus's ministry? Well, it's not just because he was a unique individual. And apparently he was. He wore strange clothing of camel's hair and he ate locusts. Kind of an odd guy out in the wilderness, right? And so he was eccentric. There was something to see as you went out there. But that's not why he's mentioned in all four Gospels. He matters very much because of the way in which he witnesses to Jesus. It's the way that he points to the light that matters. The reason John matters is because he is promised and expected in the Old Testament, and his message, as you'll see this morning, is rooted in the Old Testament. And so when we talk about a primary witness here for the light to spread— John, in some ways, is that primary witness, but he's only testifying to what is already there in the scriptures. And ultimately, the scriptures are the primary witness. And John's ministry is to help us see how Jesus fulfills the expectations of the Old Testament. Look at the rest of verse 19 and verse 20. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So it's clear here that the religious authorities in Jerusalem know that something unique is happening. Something is going on out in the wilderness. And so they send a delegation to investigate And as they ask John who he is, his response is emphatic, isn't it? I mean, look in verse 20, what he says. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed over and over again. It emphasizes that he made it abundantly clear. I am not the anointed one. I'm not the promised one in the Old Testament. And it's clear that John here knows why they are asking this, right? I mean, they simply ask the question, who are you? And John emphatically says, I am not the Christ. They're asking because they wonder if he is the anointed one, or at least as if he thinks he is the anointed one. Now, you have to understand, during this time period, and then even later, there were a number of people who showed up on the scene who intentionally tried to present themselves as the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. They would do unique things to try to gather a following and to present themselves as the one who would free Israel from their bondage to the Roman Empire. I mean, one of these individuals is actually talked about in the book of Acts. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And this is the the Jewish religious leaders here talking about Jesus' following after he's died and risen from the dead. And they're wondering what's going to become of his followers. And one of them, Gamaliel, points this out. Look, this has happened before. And so this was not uncommon so the delegation comes out to him and asks him who he is. He emphatically says, I'm not the Christ. And so they want to know if he's some other Old Testament eschatological figure, some figure that was expected to come in the end days or the last times. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, that's a weird thing to ask, right? Like, why would they pull this Old Testament figure out and say, are you Elijah? Well, if you think back to your Old Testament, there's actually good reason for this. Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in a whirlwind. And so there was some belief that Elijah would return and he would come back. And besides the fact that Elijah just didn't die, you have passages like this. Malachi 4.5, Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the Jews read this text. They knew that Elijah didn't die. They see this guy out in the wilderness sort of dressed like him and they think, is this Elijah who's going to come before God's judgment comes? John denies this. He said, I am not. Look further in verse 21. They ask him another question. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, why do they ask him this? Why do they ask him if he is the prophet? They're referring to a specific text in Deuteronomy. Here's Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God, remember this is right before he sends Israel into the promised land. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Moses says this, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so based on this text, the people want to know, are you the prophet who is like Moses, who's expected to come in the last days? Again, John answers no. So they ask him another question in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This time, John does give an answer, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. He said, I am, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is, of course, taken from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Now, In Isaiah 40 and verse 3, the context of this is pointing forward to the time when a herald will come and announce the return of God to Israel, and that would signal the end of the exile. So in Isaiah, Israel is going to be sent into exile for their sins, and God says, I'm going to send a prophet who is going to announce the end of exile and announce God's return to his people. John understands that the return, even though the people are back in the land, the return from exile really hasn't happened yet. So he understands himself to be the fulfillment of that passage, that text. And so they hear his answer, and they're from the Pharisees. Look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they ask him now, okay, if you're none of these End times figures, if you're not Elijah, if you're not Moses, the prophet like Moses, and if you say you're who, you know, Isaiah 40 is promising, why are you baptizing? Look at verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Why are you doing this? Why are you enacting these baptisms out here in the wilderness? Now, we don't read in the Old Testament about some sort of formal rite of baptism. I mean, this is something new as we get into the New Testament. We don't, we don't really read about this. But... During this time, there were Jewish groups who practiced something called proselyte baptism. And the idea here is that they would have Gentiles who wanted, who believed in Yahweh God, and they wanted to partake of the covenant blessings and covenant promises, and they were committing themselves to obeying the law, and they would come, and this was part of how they would be initiated into the covenant family, proselyte baptism. There are also some indications that this was a ritual washing that would have happened in the Old Testament to cleanse you from defilement, and it was all kind of wrapped up. Now, the interesting thing about proselyte baptism is that you immersed yourself. You went under the water yourself, but that's not what John is doing here. He's doing something unique. He's the one baptizing those who come to him. They want to know, why are you doing this? here. Look at verses 26 to 28. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now John almost here sidesteps their question about baptism. He's like, yeah, I am baptizing with water. He doesn't really explain it to them here, but what he does is he he does what is typical of his ministry. He points to the one who is coming. He says, look, I am baptizing with water, but there's one coming after me who is much more significant than I am. The whole reason I'm doing this is to prepare you for him. This matches exactly what we saw in verses six through eight, doesn't it? He came as a witness to bear witness to the light. He's pointing to Jesus. And that is what he's going to do in verses 29 to, 20, to 34. Look there. The next day. Now, pause here for a second. I want you to take note of that phrase, the next day. You're going to see it a couple more times this morning. And I'm going to explain next week the significance of that because it's absolutely wonderful in the first couple of chapters of John, all right? So we'll get to that. That's a little teaser for next week. So you need to come back to understand why he uses that phrase. But you'll see that several times this morning, all right? The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He continues on here. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel, right? His baptism is about revealing Jesus to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, John here identifies Jesus as the one who's coming after him in verse 29. And then this whole passage is John explaining who Jesus is. That's what he's doing here. And I want you to notice in this passage, there are four different identities that he gives to Jesus, four descriptions of who Jesus is. Look with me. He says in verse 29, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. He says in verse 32, he's the one, Jesus is the one whom the spirit descends upon. He's also the one, verse 33, who baptizes with the spirit. And in verse 34, he's the son of God. So four different descriptions of Jesus. And believe it or not, each of these descriptions are rooted in the Old Testament. It's why John uses them here. And I really quickly want to show you these four. First of all, the Lamb of God. You probably know at least one place where this is taken from, Isaiah 53. Now, we don't know how much John understood this. We're not 100% sure why he used this phrase here. But the same word for lamb is used, and there are a couple different words you could use, as is used here, is used in John 1. Speaking of the servant here, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Gospel of John also has a major emphasis on the Passover. Sort of begins with a Passover and ends in chapter 2 and then ends with a Passover, the crucifixion. And so there's some indication here that John, the apostle, understands this to mean, as John the Baptist says it, maybe better than he knew, that Jesus was the Passover lamb who was coming. It's another phrase that he uses. Second, the spirit comes on Jesus. And this happens at his baptism. Isaiah eleven two, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Right, this is talking about his Davidic lineage. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit will come, it is expected in the Old Testament, on the Davidic king and will empower him. And that's why this happens and why John identifies it here. Third. Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit. He's going to pour out the Spirit on those who trust him and who follow him. This comes from the New Covenant passage in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit's work is tied to the new covenant and the new covenant comes through Jesus. And finally, in verse 34, you can look there, John says that he's born witness to him. He's seen what has been revealed by the father happen and he calls him the son of God. Now, when you read this title, you probably instantly think that John is claiming that Jesus will be God and is divine. And of course, Jesus is God and is divine. John 1.1, he was in the beginning with God and he was God. There is no doubt about that. And this title does hint toward that, but that's not the only thing that being called the Son of God points toward the son, God's son in the old testament is the expected davidic king. God points to this in his covenant with David. 2nd Samuel 7:14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In Psalm 2, he also says this about the coming king. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so when John picks up this language of the Son of God, he's filling back, he's referring back to all of this background about the the coming Davidic king. So here's all of what I'm saying about these verses, right? Bring all of this together for you. John the Baptist's witness matters in the Gospels. Why? Not because John is so eccentric and so unique. John the Baptist's witness matters in the Gospels because he was sent from God and he was sent to proclaim the message of God which is rooted in the Old Testament. It comes from the Scriptures. And so the primary testimony that is necessary for the light to spread is the Bible. It's the Scriptures. John testifies to the way the Scriptures point to to Jesus. The witness that brings about the spread of the light is the word of God. We saw John's goal in verse 7, right? That he would witness to the light so that all would believe. So, let's bring this forward to you and I today. Okay? Let's make a little bit of application here. Make the connection for us in what we're seeing here about the light spreading through the word of God. How does the light spread? How does the gospel go forward in our time and in our day? How do people come to believe in the light? It's through the scriptures that faith grows and is built. That's it. Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Understanding the Bible is paramount to faith, to seeing the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, think about the nature of faith, faith has an object. It's not this generic sensation that you're believing in something. It has an object, something you are trusting in, that you're placing your faith in in. It rests on something. You believe in something. So what is the object of your faith? What bolsters your faith? What creates faith? What grows your faith? It's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the scriptures. How can you believe in Jesus? How can you really trust him? And really know him to eternal life if you have not heard of him. If you don't know the picture that the Bible presents of him. How can you have faith in him? How can you truly know him if you don't know the Bible? Listen, at this church, we do not claim, I do not claim, to have all of our ducks in a row. When I have everything, everything figured out, there is no way I'm a ministry expert in any sense of the word. Far from it. Times are confusing, right? There's all sorts of opinions out there. There's access to more information than there has ever been in the history of humanity. And it is overwhelming. And so you can find anything about anything. There are perspectives that you can hear, people screaming at you to believe something every night on television and all day long on social media. It's all over the place. There's more information than you can understand and and process through in a thousand million lifetimes that's available to you now. But here's what we go back to. In all of that chaos and all of that information, here's what we cling to. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. The Bible. This is it. And when things get foggy, when they get confusing, when you can't see very far in front of you and make sense of what is happening around you, throw yourself back on this book and the God who wrote it. The primary witness is here. And when we do that, When we go back to this primary witness, it leads us to a very simple methodology to spread the light. That's the second essential here. I don't love the word technique, but it was a T word with a P word, and so it worked well. There's a primary testimony and there's a very plain technique or process or methodology for this. It's not difficult. It's quite simple how this happens. John testifies to what God has revealed to him through the Old Testament scriptures. And watch what happens when John preaches verses 29 to 34. When he talks about who Jesus is and roots it in the Old Testament. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So think about the circumstances here, right? John has disciples. They have been listening to him. They heard, verses 29 to 34, they heard him talk about how he was pointing to the light. That's the whole point. They heard him talk about the Old Testament and the Lamb of God and the one on whom the Spirit will come. He's the Son of God. And then they see Jesus walk by. They heard what John said in John 1.15. He who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. They hear all of this and they don't understand all the details of it probably at this point. But they understood that John's ministry was preparing for someone else to come. And then John identifies that someone and they know they're ready to go. And their response is when they've heard the word of God, they follow him. They go after him. And this is the first part of this process of spreading the light. John spoke of Jesus, and they followed him. They wanted to know more about him. They went after him. Notice the second part of this in verses 38 and 39. Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, "'What are you seeking?' Which is a wonderful question that gets asked other times in this gospel. And I think he's asking them here, obviously, in this. But I think John, the apostle, includes this because this is a question all of us really need to ask. What are you going after? What are you seeking? What is the foundational authority in your life? What determines how you live and act? But Jesus asked them here, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So they follow him in order to be with him. Now it's interesting here because the word staying that is, is used here a couple of times that they ask him, this word is used somewhere else in the Gospel of John. And it could be translated abide. Where are you abiding? We want to abide with you. We want to be with you. And listen to the relationship that is described in John 15 using this word. Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Look, here's the point. They follow Jesus in order to be with him, to abide with him, to be in his presence, to be close to him. There's a vital connection between a disciple and his teacher and his or her Lord. Life, as we saw in John 15, spiritual vitality, spiritual fruit, the ability to do anything spiritually is from the Lord Jesus. It's from staying with him. It's from abiding in him. And so you've got the first two pieces of this process, of this technique here. And they're really quite simple. You hear from the primary witness and you follow. You go after him and you want to be with him and abide with him. And once you abide with him and spend time with him and know him, the third part of this process happens very naturally. There's... Not a lot of coaching that takes place here. Look at verse 40, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother, was one of the two who was a disciple of John, who followed Jesus. There's good reason to think the other one of those two was John the Apostle. And so Andrew and John follow him and stay with him. And then Andrew, realizing who he is, and again, probably not understanding the full extent of what his ministry will be, definitely not. But at least understanding this is the one who is promised in the Old Testament, what does he do? he's so excited, he goes and finds his brother. And he's like, look, we have found the anointed one. We found the one who is promised. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, I need to try to help you understand what's going on here. The grammar of this is a little bit difficult but I don't think this reads quite the right way to get at what's going on in this passage, okay? So I think it should read like this. The next day he, because in Greek the word Jesus doesn't come until later in the sentence. So I think what it should say is the next day he, and it's talking about Andrew. Andrew. Because up in verse 41 it says he first found his brother. And so this is the second person he goes after. And in verse 44, Philip knows Andrew and Peter. They already have a relationship, it seems. And so here, what I think is happening, the next day, Andrew, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, or I'm sorry, he decided to go to Galilee. And then it says Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me, or Jesus said to him, follow me. So Andrew finds Philip after he goes to Galilee, and then, gee, sorry, that was a little bit confusing. Jesus says to him, follow me. You can see there, it's a little confusing. But the point is that Andrew continues to go out and find others to introduce to Jesus. Look what Philip does in verses 45 and 46. Philip found Nathaniel. right? It's spreading, And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. He's already using the words of Jesus here and wants Nathanael to come and see who Jesus is for himself. Come back and see who he is. I'm not sure anything I say will convince you, but you need to see exactly who he is for yourself. And Nathaniel's interaction here with Jesus sets us up for the rest of the gospel. This is a beautiful way to introduce the rest of the gospel to prepare us for what we're going to see. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael is approaching, coming to Jesus. Philip is going to introduce them. And as he's coming up, Jesus speaks about his character. He identifies who he is. And his point here is not that Nathaniel's sinless. His point here is that he's straightforward. He's not a hypocrite, that he's guileless, that he will say what he means. He's honest. Of course, that was evidenced by the way he described Nazareth earlier. Now, the way Jesus identifies him here is shocking to Nathanael. Look at verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Jesus here clearly demonstrates supernatural knowledge. He knows Nathanael, he knows his character, and he can even identify what he was doing before Philip Came. And this convinces Nathanael that Jesus is who Philip said he was. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, this, this here, this statement, and what happens after this, again, this prepares us for the rest of the gospel as the light spreads. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What a wonderful setup for what you and I are going to see regarding the sun in the rest of this gospel. The whole rest of the book is going to reveal more and more of the sun to us. And the reader is going to see the Son through these demonstrations of his character, of his deity, and through all of these signs that are going to be performed. And what will these signs be showing us? Look at verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, it's the first time that phrase is used in this gospel and it will be used many more times. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you're probably already thinking, this reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. It's the story of Jacob, one of the patriarchs. It's taken from his life. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, and Jacob was a recipient of God's covenant blessing, Right, He was the second born, but the covenant blessing and the line of the future Messiah comes through him. And so he's the recipient of that promise. And here, in, where this story is taking place, is in Genesis 28. And in this story, Jacob is heading out to go find a wife. Isaac has sent him out to go find a wife. And he stops at this place for the night, and he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees angels going up and down from heaven to earth, to God and from God, from heaven above to earth below. Now, in Genesis 28, the English word that is used there is the word ladder. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word ladder, I think of something that I could buy at Home Depot, that is not what was going on and what Jacob was seeing there, an extension ladder going up and how do the angels all fit? Is someone meets, I mean, you know, it's all the, all the things that happen when you think of that in terms of a ladder. That's not what's going on. There's probably a note in your Bible there, if you're looking at Genesis 28, that says flight of steps. And there's a particular reason for that. In the ancient world, there was a thing called a ziggurat or a temple that had steps going up the side of it. And that, most likely, is what Jacob was seeing, not a ladder. And of course, a temple is what? It's a place where heaven meets earth. It's a place where people go to get to know their God or to offer worship to their God. It's a connection point between men and God above. And in his dream, God affirms his covenant with Jacob, and he shows him a connection between heaven and earth. Listen to what Jacob says when he wakes up the next morning regarding this experience. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It's the connection point. Jacob understood this to be an encounter with God, and he understood this to be the coming together of heaven and earth. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am the place where heaven meets earth. This is what you're going to witness. It's the same idea as John 1.14, where Jesus, the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. Heaven comes down to earth. And so he's telling Nathanael, those who follow him and see the great things that are coming will see heaven meet earth, and they will receive divine revelation from God through Jesus Christ. So, this is how the light spreads. It's very simple in a lot of ways. There is a primary witness, the scriptures, And there's a very simple and plain methodology to this. You hear the word taught. You hear the word of the scriptures. You follow Jesus. You abide with him. And then you call others and you introduce others to him. That has been going on for 2,000 years. And it will continue until the Lord comes back. So a couple of questions for you today as we finish up. As you think about this passage, and even as you think about what's coming in the Gospel of John and what we will see together, are you a person who consistently loves and listens to the primary witness of the Bible? Are you a person who drinks in the Scriptures on a regular basis? Do you love the Scriptures? Do give yourself to the Bible to be someone who knows the Bible. Are you a person who, who learns the scriptures? Who says, I don't know this well enough. I need to dive in further and learn to a deeper level. Because that's how I know Jesus is through the scriptures. And that's how my faith in Him is built, as I see Him through His Word. And as you learn the Scriptures, are you then going out and finding someone else to, for whom you can introduce Jesus? Are you bringing someone else actively into an encounter with him? I mean, that's what happens here with his disciples. They meet him, they stay with him, they understand more about him, and then they go find others and they bring them to him as well. And so who in your life are you in the process of introducing to Jesus? Who are you in the process of helping to abide with Jesus? Maybe it's not a first-time introduction. Maybe it's not someone who's never heard the gospel before. Maybe it's a, a believer. Maybe it's someone else in this church. But you're in the process of helping them and encouraging them to abide with him, to stay with him, to know him and know the scriptures. I mean, that's the process of how this happens. You meet Jesus, you abide with him, and then you help others. That's it. That's what we're doing at the most basic level here. That's why we are here. Do you have someone that you're helping along this discipleship process? It's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Hear the Bible, believe the Bible, follow Jesus, abide with Jesus, and then introduce others to him. That's it. That's what we're doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our time together. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for the revelation of who you are through the scriptures. We're so thankful that you are the expected and promised one of the Old Testament and that we we know you through the Bible. Go back and study and learn and reintroduce ourselves to you over and over again in your word. And we're so thankful that the light has spread, that those of us who are here have heard of you. We have been introduced to you. What an amazing gift of grace. And so I pray that you would motivate us, embolden us to once again re-encounter you in the scriptures and then to go out and to introduce others. To be like Andrew here, who is so excited that he has met the Messiah, that he goes and grabs everyone that he can and brings them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that you are doing through your word and in and through us. And we just ask that it would continue by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.